0: What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay. On today's show, we're digging deeper into one of the best geek movies of all time, Jurassic Park. Why do we have a fascination with amusement parks and theme parks? How does John Hammond compare to Walt Disney? Does ethics play a role in science? And why does chaos reign when our hubris propels us to play God? Jurassic Park's story addresses all of those points and more. Joining me today to dig deeper into this film is fan favorite, Justin Weaver, who is also taking on the hosting duties for us, which I'm super grateful for. And from the Story Cauldron podcast, Anthony Holder. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on Jurassic Park, which you can share in the Story Geeks Facebook group. The link to the Story Geeks Facebook group is in the show notes. And before you forget, click the subscribe button so you don't miss our upcoming shows. Next week, Daryl and I are sharing our thoughts on geek film roles and who played them best. We're also working on some new super secret serials that are in development. and We'd love for you to join us on those, so click that subscribe button. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. And before we dive in further, about a month ago, we got one of the coolest shoutouts of all time. And we are so grateful for this. This is like getting a present on Christmas for the first time. It's awesome. And we wanted to share it with you guys. Here's the clip.
1: First up, as you've just heard, is our geek queen who can be found moonlighting from time to time on rival podcasts. You never see me doing this. Like the story geeks. It's Helen O'Hara.
2: You liar.
1: Well, I've never been in the story geeks.
2: Okay, true. But, you know, only because you haven't organized it. Mm-hmm. What podcasts are floating your boat at the moment, Helen? What's, what's, what's um, exciting you?
0: Well, I had a really good time talking to, to them. They were great fun. Um, hello, Jay and Daryl. That was great. To Helen O'Hara and Chris Hewitt from the Empire Podcast, thank you both so much for one of the biggest geek film podcasts of all time to take the time to give us a shout-out That's just amazing. We are super grateful to you both and we cannot wait to have you back on the show. Chris, maybe we'll get you on for the first time. Thanks for sticking with us through that slightly longer intro. Now, Justin, tell us a little bit about yourself before I jump into our guests.
1: Hey, I'm Justin. I work for the Walt Disney Company. I, of course, don't represent them in my opinions and thoughts and all of that. Um, I am married to a cute redhead named Kim who is a high school theater teacher Uh, we love stories Um, we tell stories in our jobs so it's the best to come here and hash them out and talk deeper about them Uh, I have two master's degrees in theology um, so I love thinking deeply about what's being communicated in our culture. I I love coming here and talking.
0: Yeah, we love having you here. So, not only do we have uh, Justin Weaver, who has a couple theology degrees, as as he said, which means he's um, overqualified to be digging deeply into the show, we also have a philosophy person (laughs) joining us (laughs) on this show. Uh, And you've heard him before, too. It's Anthony Holder from the Story Cauldron podcast. Anthony, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Uh, it is really great to have you back. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself? Well, at the
2: time of this recording, I'm about a week away from moving across the country because I, uh, I have a background in philosophy, but I just can't get enough of it. I guess I'm getting ready to go (laughs) back to school. To do even more of that, it's an awfully expensive way to read a bunch of old books, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a it's a fun thing, and it's it's uh, something that I get to do on the uh, the podcast that you mentioned, the Story Cauldron, uh, with Bobby and Garrett, where we talk about movies and the stories and the philosophies and the the ideas behind the movies. So uh, I'm, I am excited to get to. Maybe not necessarily look so much at the history, but look more at at the the deeper meanings of one of my favorite movies of all time tonight.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, you guys did an episode on Jurassic Park, which is our topic for tonight. So if you haven't listened to the, the Story Cauldrons podcast on Jurassic Park, that's actually a great place to start. Um, I'm not saying you have to go listen to it right now. But if you listen to this podcast, you listen to this podcast, you think, I wonder where a story like Jurassic Park even comes from, what came before it, why did things come before it, and how did that influence the story of Jurassic Park? Definitely go check out their podcast. You'll learn all of that stuff. Anthony will talk about Tolkien it'll be great it'll be <laughs> fantastic true. I don't I, I don't
2: know if we did that well a little bit a little bit on that one that was like the fourth episode that we did so I, I'll I'll spare you the URL because it was before we learned what SEO is but <laughs> uh, yeah if you just go to com or plug that into wherever you get your podcast you'll be able to find it and, but yeah we talked about the island of Dr. Moreau and we talked about the myth of Icarus and all sorts of fun stuff
0: Yep, and actually, you. so Justin prepared all the questions. I threw out, I think, one or two questions. The one question I threw out was influenced by your oh podcast. Oh, so there you go. Shucks there golly. There you go. Yeah. Um, but now at this point in time, I'm going to turn the podcast over to Justin so that he can lead us through these questions. I have the con. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Now,
1: Jay, before we get too far into this, I know that you've also al- already created some content on Jurassic Park. In a partnership with Network 1901, you're doing a gold-blooming podcast. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that, where we can find it? and just a little hook to get someone to listen to the Gold Blooming
0: episode that had to do with Jurassic Park. Yeah, so there's a couple ways that you can get access to that content. So, um, yeah, I joined Network 1901. They were hosting a series on Jeff Goldbloom, which, of course, has to include Jurassic Park. Um, So there was an episode uh, on... If you go to Network1901.com, they're really good friends of ours. You've heard them on the podcast before. Network1901.com. You can find, there's a podcast link, click on the podcast link, and then there's actually a series that is called Gold Blooming, and you can go check that out. All I think there's eight episodes, I wanna say, six to eight episodes, something like that. They're all out there. There's one on Jurassic Park. You should listen to it. They're really funny. Uh, Josh has this thing called, what would Jeff Goldbloom do? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fantastic question. Um, we also had a, we actually had an episode of the Story Geeks podcast uh, in conjunction with Network 1901, where Josh, the lead of the Gold Blooming podcast joined me to dig deeper specifically into Dr. Ian Malcolm's character. So we talked about a lot about chaos theory in that particular podcast. Uh, so that will actually come up again in this one, but you can go check that out. Just go back through our log of podcasts and find the one about Jurassic Park specifically about Dr. Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldbloom's character and what in the world is chaos theory and why are we talking about it? So you can awesome. go check that out
1: awesome thank you so uh, Anthony you already said that this movie is one of your very favorites and this movie shows up on so many best-of lists so let's just take a minute to talk about what this movie means to us so Anthony why is Jurassic Park one of your favorite movies
2: well uh, okay, so if you had asked me this question, just like stopped me on the street last week, I would have given you one answer. But when I, I when I started, when I sat down and started thinking about it, I kind of, uh, it, it was good to uh, analyze, think, think about it a little more deeply. Uh, I mean, on one hand, I love this movie because I've been watching it since I was like seven or eight years old. And so there's some deep nostalgia. I, I mean, of all the movies that I've seen, this is definitely the one I've seen the most, just playing mm-hmm. it over and over and over again. Uh, and it's, you know, all of the things that you love when you're eight, you still love when you're 28 or 38 mm-hmm. or 48, uh, all of the uh, the action and the, the funny one-liners and, and, and the, the excitement. But as I'm thinking about this now from kind of a deeper perspective, the, uh, there there's a, a line from a, a guy named Blaise Pascal that came to mind where he talks about the greatness and the wretchedness of humanity. How humanity is this, this amazing thing, that, and we can do these amazing things, but at the same time, we're also broken, and we, mm. we take that greatness and just run it through the mud. Mm. And I think Jurassic Park demonstrates both of those sides of humanity really well. Um, mm. And uh, speaking as somebody who just saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> Last night, actually, come to think of it, I just saw it. Uh, that uh, I, 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 maybe I'll, I'll try to bottle up my opinions about that because I I, 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 I was, I was very disappointed because I think that that possibility of showing this this two sided nature. Of humanity is is just completely lost in this new Mm. this new trilogy Uh, but back but back here in Jurassic Park you have you have all of the the wonderful technological brilliance um, that that humanity can put on display but then you also see what happens when our opinions of ourselves go too far Mm. and how everything breaks
1: Hmm. yeah and you're talking about nostalgia. Jurassic Park was the first PG-13 movie I was allowed to see by my parents. (laughs) And so we went for my best friend's birthday party. And so just the viewing, the first viewing of Jurassic Park was so epic to me and so formative just in my little geek upbringing. And so tons of nostalgia for me too. And uh, I think... For me, when I think about this movie, I think more about Steven Spielberg as just an incredible storyteller mm. than anything else. The When Alan Grant and Al- Ellie Sattler both see a dinosaur for the first time, John Williams' music playing in the background, it is truly glorious and epic and amazing, and I feel that every single time I watch this. And the suspense that he creates with the raptors, and just even introducing a raptor as a dinosaur. <laughs> I was not aware of Raptors before Jurassic Park. It was you know, T-Rex Tyrannosaurus, uh, the Triceratops, and a couple other things. But raptors were not on the radar, so just even introducing something that I became horribly afraid of <laughs> was so <laughs> impressive to me. Um, so yeah, Jurassic Park is incredibly important to me as a movie for a ton of different reasons. But Jay, What does Jurassic Park mean to you?
0: Well, I'm going to echo a lot of the sentiments you guys have already been talking about. Um, Now, so Anthony, you were pretty young when you first saw this. How how old were you, Justin?
1: Like nine. Okay, so you guys are
0: are about the same age. I'm a little older than you guys. So that was probably about 93, right? Yeah, 93. Uh, So I'd have been 12. Um, And Jurassic Park marks, I think, the moment in film history when CGI, computer generated images, became viable when telling a story filmed predominantly with live action images. Up until this point, I do not believe that CGI was believable in the way that Steven Spielberg made these, these dinosaurs a viable storytelling device in live action film um, that could be mixed with practical effects and you wouldn't know the difference between the two which is remarkable in 1993 because they still can't do that in movies today sometimes. Um, So that, I think, is just something to reflect on. I mean, I think you can watch Jurassic Park today and still be astounded at the quality of Jurassic Park. Um, But what's masterful about the film and what takes it from being just another film about dinosaurs Steven Spielberg could have stopped at the CGI and said, I'm creating a movie about dinosaurs that look truly like they're in your backyard or that they could be. He could have stopped right there. He could have done what James Cameron did with Avatar and said, (laughs) I'm creating a technological marvel. Who cares about storytelling, (laughs) right? Um, But he didn't. He tells an amazing story, and Anthony hit on this so well. It has depth to it. The characters have depth to them. He could have just given given us amazing looking dinosaurs. He gave us an amazing story on top of super realistic looking dinosaurs. So it's it's actually number four or five. I can't remember. I think it's I think it's number five. Um, it's competing with Back to the Future for the four and five spot uh, on my top 10 geek films list. And. It just so happens that geek films tend to mirror my top films of all time. Mm. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite films of all time. It is an amazing masterpiece of cinema.
1: So it's a movie that we all care deeply about that was formative for culture, filmmaking, for ourselves just in viewing. And now we get to dig deeper into it. So, Jay, I'm going to start this first question with you. Um so the idea of genetic engineering, this incredibly powerful scientific achievement is immediately taken in the movie by John Hammond and turned into an attraction. Just literally something that he hopes to make money off of and uh, bring in viewers. So uh, he takes this ability to create real living dinosaurs and uh, makes it an amusement park. This seems like such an American thing to do, even though this is in (laughs) Costa Rica, um, it feels like a very American thing to do. Um, And that was just getting me to think about um, amusement parks in general and uh, what amusement parks are for Americana. So just thinking about um, Americana amusement parks, uh, what value do you feel like amusement parks hold for us and our culture? Um, and why are they such a big part of Americana
0: I have a much longer answer to this question than I should have so just (laughs) just bear with me (laughs) Um, so I am a Disney annual pass holder I have been uh, with 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 breaks here and there but I have been for about a decade my wife and I have been annual pass holders thank you
1: for your support (laughs) no problem no problem
0: (laughs) Um, I'm fascinated by Disney lore um, and I want to just take, take the time. We already made a shout out to network 1901. They are predominantly a Disney podcast. Um, the no midnight podcast is also a predominantly, I should say Disney themed podcast. They're not sponsored by Disney. They just talk about Disney. Um, they both cover Disney history and the impact that Disney has on culture, which is significant. And I'll get to why in a minute. Um, so if you, if you have any interest in that, definitely go check out No Midnight Podcast, the Network 1901 podcast, really, really great stuff. I'd love to hear them comment on this question as well. But I think any I, I would immediately divide amusement parks into two categories. This is the first thing I would do. I would say there is sort of the um, this element of amusement that is basically providing entertainment and in that regard, I would say like, okay, you have Coney Island, you have magic mountain. The goal of the amusement park is to thrill you to give your brain a rush of chemicals that pleases you. Uh, traditionally speaking, I have never been into those types of parks all that much. They feel like state fairs to me, like permanent state fairs. Um, but the second definition is what I would call a theme park. I do believe that John Hammond is trying to create a theme park. Um so I'll answer the question about specifically about amusement parks later, but this is why I love theme parks. A theme park immerses you in a completely new world a complete a, a completely different place. And oftentimes if done well like it's done at Disney many times well, it immerses you in a story. Universal Studios does it well at times as well. but this is quintessential because amusement parks to me, do not actually provide much value at all. (laughs) An amusement park to me is purely a form of escapism. Not saying you can't have escapism, not saying that that's bad or wrong, but in terms of providing lasting value, I don't think an amusement park really provides lasting value. Theme park on the other hand, I do believe holds lasting value because a theme park when done well, immerses you in a story, obviously we're the story geeks. So stories, when we describe them and we talk about Lisa Cron's book, wired for story. Stories are the way that human brains understand and interpret the world around them. So theme parks have the ability to immerse us in a story that holds meaning and value about our perspectives on the world outside the walls of the theme park, not just within the walls of the theme park or on the attraction or in the story they're telling you. These actually have the ability to change our value systems. So um, I do believe that theme parks in order for them to be valuable need to tell compelling stories they have to have narratives that have something to say something that we could learn about the world around us um i will and I, and i would say this too walt disney and the imagineers at disneyland and disney world started that concept out super well um, I think that they tie in themes of their parks into the core themes of American history, which then gives us that Americana mm-hmm. sense so that we're seeing, um, you know, America itself was, well, let me put it this way. America itself was crafted as a better place to live, right? You know, come to America. It's a better place to live. You can build your future. Well, I think Disneyland and Disney World basically were built off that same intent. Like not only can you come to America for a better place to live, But you can come to these parks, and this is the embodiment of what America should be. It's not always this way, but this is the way that it should be. Um, And I think that because Disney tied his attractions to early American values, uh, and values that date even back further than America, the immersive stories become really, really powerful. Um, I am doing some new videos for the Story Geeks where I break down the stories that are being told on Disney rides. And I think that some of these stories are super intense, and especially the early dark rides that you find in Fantasyland. There are some really intense things that dig deep into morality-based ideas, and I am a little worried that theme parks are moving away from that. We just did a—I just did a story ride breakdown for the Incredicoaster, which is an Incredibles-themed roller coaster. And I would tell you that there's nothing deep about that thread. <laughs> mm. It's just very much more in the amusement park category. It does have a story, it does have a theme, but it's, it's not, it's not uh, impacting that so much. Mm. So, so, the, so basically to answer the question, um, why is it that it's associated with Americana and why do we love it? Um, I think that um, theme parks are trying to build on a sense of utopia and that we're trying to to build out a sense of hope and we're trying to figure out what it means to be hopeful in this world. And theme parks are trying to give us, not just an escape, like an amusement park might, but a stories that give us ways of living that would create utopia around us. And I think that speaks to Americana for us because that Americana was go move to America and build your own utopia because you have the freedom to do it. And I think that basically john hammond is trying to achieve that same level i don't think he's creating an amusement park hmm. i think he's trying to create a theme park and that's going to educate people inspire people show people teach people about a world that existed that no longer exists anymore and i think that there's that sense of hope um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually gonna all in, in some of the other questions that we have today I'll, I'll compare and contrast like john hammond to walt disney a little bit more but i think that that creates this really fascinating groundwork for people to really learn about the world in a different way when it's a theme park not necessarily an amusement park because amusement parks are something you escape to but theme parks are something that you maybe do a little escaping but you also learn how to think or or learn what utopia could look like
1: hmm. i love one of the recent branding things that The Walt Disney Company has done is Dream Big Princess Mm. and it's using all of the Disney princesses to say there's a princess for everyone. Mulan was a warrior. uh, Belle is a reader and it just goes through all the princesses and pulls out these wonderful elements of them and invites people to live a life bigger than you are right now. And so yeah the Walt Disney Company isn't just about amusing people, and they are incredibly amusing, super funny, super enjoyable, super moving, but um, I think there are deeper goals when they are at their best, calling people to live life to the fullest. Absolutely. And uh, it's super fascinating. Um, So Anthony, uh, same question to you, um, just about Americana theme parks. Uh, what, What do you think theme parks contribute Um, Or I was saying amusement parks and you totally converted me over to saying theme parks. But uh, what value do uh, amusement parks have and why are they a part of Americana?
2: So uh, I really like the two different kinds of theme park distinction or the amusement park versus theme park distinction. Because uh, when I think of Americana, I actually don't think of theme parks. I think of what I guess we could call amusement parks. I I think Mm -hmm. of the carnival rides. I think of the... The games that are probably kind of a ripoff, but you play them anyway. (laughs) You got to impress your
1: girl, absolutely.
2: Oh, and that's exactly what I was thinking of. uh, That it's kind of this, uh, this, this iconic for lack of a better word here, courting ritual, uh, mm-hmm. where we don't have a lot of American traditions. Like, okay, so did you see, this is might be a weird uh, comparison here, but did you see the third Despicable Me movie?
0: I haven't seen that.
1: I have not seen it. I'm ah, so sorry. N- neither of you
2: have kids, do you? No (laughs) Ah, ah, I win Well okay So real real quick They go to another country And there's this really strange uh, Thing going on in the square Where all of these kids Are like giving each other cheese And dancing And one of the kids Gets roped into doing that And accidentally ends up Getting engaged to somebody (laughs) And and it's all funny, but like we don't really have a lot of things like that in America. I mean, we don't have these old, old world traditions for how we find each other. But carnivals and amusement parks kind of have, have filled that role. You, you go on Friday night, you go down, you get your cotton candy, you throw the baseball at the milk cartons or milk bottles and then yes you win the Cupid doll for mm. your love and <laughs> I, I think a lot of those uh those kinds of iconic american qualities like com- competitiveness um excitement we love the we love the the roller coasters we mm. love screaming and getting our adrenaline up um I, I, it, we we could be more pessimistic if we wanted to um talk about things like uh like 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 being afraid of being bored or mm. uh, an obsession with uh, what we could what, what could we call it Un- unfair or, or twisted capitalism <laughs> mm. but I do think that uh, the amusement park at least I mean Jay did a great job of describing the theme park but the amusement park side at least really does kind of take a lot of the quintessential American um, elements and, and bottle them up into this weird Neon colored haze,
1: yeah. The neon colored blur as you spin past it on a whirling ride, yeah, with uh, with the girl that you just won that teddy bear for. So, right. absolutely. Um, I went to high school in Minnesota, so I got to experience that summer fair, um, and all your buddies going out there and just having fun. So, that the amusement park in that sense absolutely feels like Americana to me, even though I have an incredibly deep love for theme parks now. So I really do like that distinction. I anticipate we'll be using that distinction throughout this podcast now. Um, So uh, Anthony, I'm gonna throw this next question to you first. Um, It's about John Hammond and just uh, that he is so driven by this business endeavor that is Jurassic Park. Uh, He wants to see this dream become a reality. Um, It's almost like a a modern version of Walt Disney, like you were saying. Mm. Um, How do you think his drive is helping or hurting him, Um, particularly as it relates to the very serious, potentially dangerous uh, aspects of Jurassic Park?
2: Okay, so did either of you read the book? Yeah.
0: Uh Yeah. I yeah. did not. It's no. been a while, though.
2: Okay, so it's been a while. I I love the movie, and I I love the book, and and you have to keep those two things separate, right? Uh, <laughs> as anyone who saw the Hobbit movies can appreciate. But <laughs> the, the the one, if there was one really major change from the book to the movie, it was the character of John Hammond. Uh, because in the movie, he's he's Richard Attenborough. He's the kind of bumbling grandpa, grandpa that you love. And yeah, he's he seems to be kind of naive about things, but he is, uh, he's good. He's a good hearted person and he just loves dinosaurs and he wants everybody else to love him too. Um, in the book, you get none of that. In, in the mm-hmm. book, he is this rather unlikable con man. He's like the uncle. He's not your grandpa that you love. He's the kind of creepy uncle that you're pretty sure sells illegal things out of his truck. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and he is literally like the, the whole thing, the whole reason for the story in the book is that he is running out of money and he's he's not able to con any more money out of his benefactors and so he brings these people onto the island to try and prove that it's going to work so that he can bilk them for more cash and and so he's absolutely the evil walt disney i mean he is he is I mean, he is downright unlikable, and, and it's a bit of a spoiler. But the book is over thirty years old, or almost thirty years old, so I don't really care. <laughs> but he actually dies in the book, mm. and you don't feel bad; like you're kind of like good by that point. You you don't mm. really care that he's dead. Um, yeah. But in the movie, in the movie, they and I don't know if it was because they cast him the way that they did, or if this was more an intentional change because they didn't want the guy to be so downright just unlikable. But he is a lot more, uh, you, you sympathize with him. Like that, that scene when he's in the cafeteria and and he's just like, you know, holding his head in his hands. You, you're like, man, I, I see you were trying to do something great and, it, and it's all falling apart. Uh, I mean, it's kind of your fault that it's falling apart. So, I mean, it, you know, yeah, I feel for you, but come on, you could have paid that guy a little bit more and it mm. probably wouldn't have been so bad. But it's a it's a really great comparison. I mean, Michael Crichton actually it was on one of the DVDs uh, um, interviews that Michael Crichton gave. He actually said that that was part of his intention when he was writing the book that he was he wanted to write a story about the dark side of Walt Disney. Hmm. Uh, and so you guys are totally on track here uh, when when you're you're comparing him to Disney. He is he is uh, definitely in the book, and it kind of gets softened in the movie. But you you can still get some shades of that for sure
1: Mm. and even in the movie they call that out pretty directly saying that you know hey in 1956 when Disneyland opened nothing worked and I was just telling Jay that Disneyland opened in 1955 I was so astounded that they got (laughs) a little detail like that wrong in the movie but um that's really fascinating I know come on uh it's Uh, super fascinating to think about what if Walt Disney wasn't a virtuous person or what if Walt Disney uh, weren't truly interested in the safety of his guests and how different would a theme park be uh, under that kind of a, under that kind of a personality. That's really interesting. Um,
2: I know, I know that some of the, some of the criticisms that people bring to the story of the movie. um, I think if you read the book it it really fleshes out Dennis Nedry's character a lot more Mm. and his and and why he's so when you watch the movie it's kind of hard to see why he doesn't how can you how can you not like John Hammond John Hammond is so nice and so grandpa like and in the book it really clears that up you can see why he's so disgruntled and wants to work with this other company
1: yeah, if if we're talking about well-devel- well-developed characters, Dennis Nedry is not one of them. He, he's <laughs> no. a pretty flat character. Yeah, that, like he is. he's he's the guy that sets the match that, you know, starts it all burning down. Um that's and that's right. the role he plays. Uh, we don't, you know, and we just watch with uh horror and glee when he meets his demise, but yeah, um that I, you've sold me. I'm going to read
0: the book. You should read the book. The book is really good. Um I'm, I'll am i take it in a slightly different direction because I work with a lot of entrepreneurs in my day job and I find that a lot of the startup founders I'm working with are encountering the same issues that John Hammond is encountering. They're, they're facing the same scenarios that he's facing. Now they're running out you, of goats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and, these, but these, they have tons of ice cream. Yeah, massive, <laughs> massive storms are coming to the, on, on their business. Um, I have actually faced some of the same issues in my own businesses, and so it's incredibly challenging when you're trying to break new ground, whether that's with something super innovative or whether it's something with where you're trying to break down competition because you want to get heard or seen or purchased from or whatever. So here's a couple of things that I would say um, that are similar to what I've seen other people experience, including myself. Um, when you're trying to do something innovative and new, you face ethical challenges. So we see this like not only do we see it in Hammond, right? Like wh- how many corners can you cut? Can you take out security gates? Can you cut costs? Can you do these kinds of things? Um, look at Facebook. Sometimes you're creating things that are not necessarily bad, but you create problems that you didn't even know you were going to create. Facebook created (laughs) privacy issues that it didn't think that they were going to... They had no idea when they created Facebook they were going to create these problems, but they've created these problems. Um, And that becomes an ethical issue. Uh, Actually, there's a book I've read um, about when you're creating apps, there's a way to hack the human brain so that it becomes more addicted to apps. And one of the chapters of that book is now you have an ethical obligation because you know how to create apps that are more addictive now you have an ethical obligation to only use that for the betterment of society not to cause people to be addicted to them
1: with great power comes great responsibility (laughs) that's right
0: that's right we were talking about spider-man on our live show earlier and the, the, the book is called hooked by the way and it's a really good read um, but you also face, so like Hammond, you also face financial and societal pressure. It's very difficult to make money. I think there's this there's this idea where it's like, oh, yeah, well, if only I applied myself to making money, I'd make a bunch of money. Uh, go try it. <laughs> it is not that easy to do. It is very difficult. Um, you have to delight people with a product or service that they really want or need in order for you to make money. Uh, and then we see the, the lawyer, right? We see the lawyer. Uh, talk about the legal implications, which are related though not the same as the ethical implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like Walt Disney, we've seen in Walt Disney's story at least that he was incredibly driven and focused on perseverance. I'm going to, I'm going to make it to the next step. That com- that company I have to close. I'm going to open up a second one. I learned lessons from the previous one. I'll do it different. There's, this, there's a perseverance that you have to have in order to be successful that is insane. Mm-hmm. And all of those things, um, you know, are very, very difficult. As you pointed out in the question, there's animal rights as an issue here. Human safety is an issue here. This is a dangerous undertaking in order for him to be innovative. So he faces all of these things. Now, I will say that there are a couple positive things that I've seen from entrepreneurs as well. They challenge the status quo. They unlock the ability for people to rise above their current circumstances, both economically and creatively, sometimes socially. Uh, They unlock these things. They can solve real problems in meaningful ways, uh, which is fantastic. I mean, let's put it this way. If you identified a problem of I lose track of all of my former college friends or high school friends, guess what? Facebook allows you to connect with all of them, right? You don't lose track of them anymore. It creates other problems. It creates other societal issues, but it solves some problems, too. So and what I think is really fascinating, as in the case of John Hammond, he is restoring a part of creation. And if you don't want to call it creation, maybe you believe uh, in more of like a a, a evolution type of a scenario or some other um, historical perspective on the world that we live in, he is restoring and bringing back creatures that have gone extinct. And that's pretty amazing mm-hmm. to do. So, um, the issue I think is in order for you to do these great things, uh, And I say that meaning innovative things, because sometimes entrepreneurs are doing things that maybe we would not call great. So I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Like the, like the book, like you talked about Anthony, the book version of John Hammond, maybe (laughs) he's not doing such great things. Um, but in order to do that, that does take a toll on you. Uh, you will have an intense pressure that has an emotional, physical and, and spiritual, I believe implications when you take on that kind of deal. Um, it's not much different than like Anthony, taking on this doctoral degree that will have emotional, physical, and spiritual implications for Anthony's life. (laughs) Yeah, it will. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think Jurassic park shows us, and maybe I might even argue the movie shows it better than the book because we like him. Mm. It shows the kind of toll that, that, that this kind of thing can take. You can almost, he almost loses his grandkids. Yeah. He's ultimately responsible for all of the deaths that happen in his park. Yep. These are on him. And so innovation, change, challenging the status quo, all of those things are intense. And he fights them to try and bring about his vision. So,
1: And just going off of that for a moment, the movie opens with a scene of one of his workers being tragically killed by his product and putting yourself in the shoes of John Hammond with something that he's invested millions or billions, whatever number, tons of money into, tons of years, um, broken ground in uh, science and um, all the things that would have to be in place to make the paddocks safe for the guests to be on the outside, dinosaurs on the inside. He has invested so much. Where do you draw the line of this is too high a cost. Uh, We use the analogy of Anthony uh, going to school. He has to think about the financial cost of school, the uh, toll of moving and all of those things. When it comes to human life, um, John Hammond would have to draw the line somewhere and he draws the line at the end of the movie, this is too high a price at this point. Mm. But should he have drawn a line um, after the first worker? Or should it have been after the second or the third? You know, so when we're breaking ground on something like that, it's weird to think about how high a price is too much yeah. for the product that is amazing, is incredible, is bringing um, you know a, a living miracle pretty much. Um, but but at what cost? And that's so much of the, uh, of a theme of this movie. Um, so and, and oh, I think- yeah.
2: I think that you're right, Jay, that the movie does do a better job of showing that with, with Hammond than the book. Um, because in in the book, you don't really... Get a sense that he actually cares about Much more than money I mean yeah he mm. likes dinosaurs because they're really unique And he's going to get rich off of them But in the movie he really, he really cares Like he really is in love with these creatures mm. and, and he has a dream to bring them To the world and, and let everybody Share in the joy um, and, and so you've got A good example of the sunk Cost fallacy too that, that, That's the idea that the more You invest in something The, the harder it is to let go of it I know, the, the more emotionally invested you are in something, you, you act less and less rational when it comes to, like you were just saying, Justin, about cutting the cord and like knowing when to stop. You're like, well, I've already put so much effort into this and I really want it and it's gonna pay off in the future. Like, yeah, yeah, but somebody just died and oh, yeah. and, and now somebody else just died. And uh, I, I know it, it's hard to, to set those emotions aside because especially when they're so real and and, and powerful, but uh, yeah, at, at, like you said, at what point do you draw the
0: line? Well, in in our in our own history, you take a country, our co- like our country. We all live in the United States. Um, we built railroads on the backs of lots and lots of deaths. Uh, in fact, I was I, I saw a program about uh, the chance that you would live. Um, I believe it was the. Uh, the uh, explosives experts—I say ex- I'm using "experts" in quotation marks because they were not experts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would like that would like blow up parts of mountains so the railroad could go by them. Uh, the chance of surviving that job was incredibly low, and mostly Irish immigrants were doing it. Mm. Um, and yet the railroad goes on, man. And so I think that that it's interesting because I think some entrepreneurs or scientists or whatever, cause the same thing happened with the pursuit of nuclear technology, right? Like huh. we began to sacrifice lives because there was a greater vision about what needed to happen with the technology or with the, uh, with the improvement. And sometimes that is a pretty tough equation to play out. Because if you can't build a railroad, across the United States without people dying, how many people die without the railroad? I mean, all of a sudden you start to come up with these equations, now granted, you can't, there's no one's gonna, no one's gonna die not having dinosaurs, <laughs> right? Like, not having dinosaurs isn't gonna kill anybody. So I do think that Hammond has a basi- maybe a different kind of uh, uh, ethical implication to what he's trying to accomplish. Um, but I do believe that at least the movie hints at this, that he believes he's doing more than just creating a park that has dinosaurs in it that was a theme park. He believes he's doing more than that. Um, he believes in, in the scientific achievement that is he's unlocking, that he might believe those deaths are worth it, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting and fascinating kind of equation to play with.
1: Yeah, and as we're diving into these kind of ethics about these questions, uh, my next question is on these ethics. So. Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character Ian Malcolm at one point early in the movie uh, before the dinosaurs get out when they're sitting around the table with all the projectors around I'd like to point out that they were slide projectors there are a couple (laughs) moments where this movie dates itself in a really special way Um, they spared no expense on those slide projectors Um, so uh, Jeff Goldblum's character Ian Malcolm says your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they never stopped to think if they should. And um, I was just struck by the should in this movie because I don't think in our day and age there's much should on (laughs) much. I mean, it's kind of as long as you don't hurt someone, uh, do whatever feels right, whatever um, you want to do. And so when we're talking about uh, science, uh, do you think, Jay, there yeah. is a shouldness? Is there an ethical role in science, or is science um, amoral? It's a, No, it's just cold laboratory data. Yeah.
0: Well, I think the first thing that's really fascinating to me, because we talked about Ian Malcolm. I talked about Ian Malcolm with um, Josh Taylor from Network 1901 and talked about chaos theory and all of that. And what's fascinating to me is that the statement comes from Malcolm. The guy is literally a chaostician. He believes in chaos theory which means that he if if it is inevitable for science to do anything it would result in chaos um, and I don't think he's anti science necessarily so it's a very interesting that the statement comes from him the negativity comes from him because he literally believes in the inevitability of chaos um, but I do think that he has a very good point here because And I don't believe it's just regulated to only science. I think every human being in daily life has an ethical obligation. Um, As a human being, you have the ability to make decisions and just about every decision that you make, I was actually trying to think of like, are there any decisions that I make on a daily basis that do not have an impact on either other human beings or the environment or other creatures, which by the way, those later two ones have a roundabout impact on humans eventually, right? Um, even the smallest decisions we could make. Um, Anthony talked about sunk costs. There's also opportunity costs. We're all here doing a podcast. We could be doing something else. Um, so every decision that we make has an impact on those around us by me being here on the podcast. I'm not with my wife. Is that good or bad? Depends. So when, when small decisions can make an impact and potentially make a big impact as Dr. Ian Malcolm would say because of chaos theory, um, we better take all of those decisions very seriously when we make them. I think that, that that's where the, the, the ethical part of it, that's where the, you, you, know, you, you spent so much time on thinking whether you could, whether or not you should. Hammond is bringing dinosaurs back to life. That's a really big deal. Um, but the same argument could be made not only about science, but also about people doing technology. Social media has more ethical imp- Social media probably has more ethical imp- implications than dinosaurs, mm. bringing dinosaurs back to life does, right? So it's not just science. Um, how many people have died uh, through Craigslist transactions? More than Jurassic Park, probably, right? So it's not just you going tomorrow Listener of the podcast, you going to work tomorrow and making decisions at your job. You going to the store tomorrow and making decisions at the store. All of those have ethical implications. Every single decision has ethical implications, um, and those decisions will impact other people. So, yeah, I think uh, it'd be hard pressed for me not to say that there's there's that it's amoral. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, when you're talking about not only science, I immediately go to filmmaking, and uh, I remember watching Schindler's List, another Spielberg movie that yeah. um, he captured uh, so much pain, so much grief. But the movie itself is such a good, such a source of good because it reminds us never to go back here, and it also shows how. Uh, Redemption can happen. Yeah. Um, and I remember finishing watching that movie uh, and getting mad that uh, Transformers 2 existed <laughs> because I'm like, when, when something like this has been produced, why, why did someone spend, you know, their money and time uh, creating this and then taking up the time of other people that uh, sat and watched it And it did not better their life. It did not make them better people. Um, And so hopefully things like this podcast will be something that is ethically good. That people will gain something uh, from listening to it. Not only be entertained, because you guys are super entertaining. You're interesting people. But uh, that we would also be a part of uh, helping people think better, helping uh, life be better. That that's I feel like that would be one
0: of the goals of Story Geeks. There's no question. And, and, and honestly, for other people to help us think better by being in the Facebook group, mm-hmm. right? And by bringing up topics that they want us to discuss or they want us to explore, or calling us out on things we said on the podcast that maybe they don't agree with. Great! Yeah. If we can all think better, then that's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, now, um,
1: Anthony, I, I don't know a ton about this so I feel like I'm gonna say something that is you know potentially not true but from what I understand science and philosophy used to be more tightly linked there used to be um, a shouldness to science science wasn't just observe record data and just draw a conclu- conclusion off of what you observed, but that there was more of a branch of science that um, went to a should place. what What can we learn about our world? And uh, you know what can we learn about how we should live? And so when we're talking about um, ethical responsibilities, uh, I love that you have a background in uh, philosophy. so i'm I'm really interested <laughs> to hear what you'll say about this. Oh,
2: boy. Well, like, uh, so Jay had a, probably a longer answer than, what did you say, on amusement parks than he should or needed. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I, pr- I probably have a longer answer than I need to for this, too. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, Jay, you're totally right that uh, ethics is not just a matter of the so-called big questions. I, I teach an ethics class for mm. uh, for an online college. And I I always make a point to, to bring this up in the first class because sometimes people assume that an ethical dile- dilemma or an ethical conclusion is o- only with those big life-changing questions over, you know, should I marry this person or should I kill that person? I mean, I, obviously those are big ethical questions, but even the relatively small things like, should I brush my teeth this morning or mm-hmm. should I eat the last cookie in the break room? I mean, those are those are still ethical questions. You're asking for a prescriptive answer, not just a descriptive answer. I mean, a, a descriptive answer is just saying, well, Hitler killed a lot of people. Yes, he did. That is an accurate description of the world. And then the prescriptive statement would be and and he shouldn't have done that i mean that it was it was wrong for him to uh, to do that and uh, yeah uh, way back we're talking 23 2400 years ago uh when aristotle was was doing his thing uh he what he called natural philosophy is what we basically call science now um he wanted to look at the world and he wanted to make sense of it and most of the conclusions that he came to, we would say are pretty wrong. I mean he thought that rocks fell to the ground because they wanted to be there but <laughs> <laughs> But the interest in looking at the world and, and trying to understand it as a as some kind of mechanical thing that has processes that, that, uh, that, that we can analyze and that we can predict uh, that's what science uh, is still trying to do today. I mean, that, that we're trying to look at the world and understand what we see. And, and we arrange our observations into hypotheses and, and then into theories and... Mm. Uh, a, a great philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, talked about paradigms, that we try to arrange all of our ideas into these paradigms. And, and sometimes somebody comes along with a brand new idea or a brand new observation, and it completely changes the paradigm. And mm-hmm. we stop talking about um, we stop talking about physics in one way and we start talking about Einsteinian physics now and, and re- the relativity uh, that Einstein introduced into the system. It completely shifted how we change. Or how we talk about it uh, but the question of ethics I mean back back with Aristotle yeah ethics was something that he thought you could analyze scientifically because uh, he was treating science as in the same way that he he treated pretty much everything else that he thought about and uh, so eth- his his idea about ethics was very um, very embodied very instantiated it's what we now call virtue ethics uh, we talk about the kinds of characteristics that the human being should exemplify. What does it mean to be a successful human being is actually the way that Aristotle talked about it. Uh, he, 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 uh, the classic example is of a knife. If you have a good knife, it cuts well. It, mm-hmm. if, if it doesn't cut well, then it might be good for other things, but it's not a good knife. And Aristotle was interested in trying to figure out what What does it mean to be a good person in the sense of a successful person? Like, have you, at the end of your life, have you succeeded in being human or not? Mm -hmm. And he would say, if you're just a lazy person who just sits around and eats Cheetos and takes up space and wastes your time and everybody else's time, then you have failed. Then you are a bad person. Well, that's not really the way we tend to talk about ethics now uh, during the Enlightenment there was a big shift that we talk about ethics now more in in kind of um, uh, formulaic terms uh, we talk about ethics as a not not so much a matter of character but as a, a, a property of actions that, that it's not so much about that whether or not you're a good person but are you doing a good thing you know should I should I loan Jay $20 or should I punch him in the face and steal his wallet <laughs> uh, one of those things is good and one of those things is bad and we, we can we can talk about why one of those things is good uh, or, or bad I mean it's bad because it's causing him pain maybe like that might be a reason why it's a bad thing for me to do or uh, maybe it's bad because it's uh, it's not treating him with dignity and respect you know that's a very different way of saying why something is bad but it's you know, it's kind of a, a more a, a deontological way versus a, a utilitarian way. Mm. And so the question of, of that, of, of ethics in actions, doesn't really fit so well with science. Uh, it, it thought about as observations. Because mm. when you're doing science, you're trying not to really necessarily do anything. You're just trying to see what other stuff does. And so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people think about science as, as a moral, because they think about, it's not like they're trying to extract ethics from science. They're just thinking of science as something that by design is unrelated to that. It's, you know, the the same reason you don't take a snorkel to the ice skating rink, right? I mean, it's just not Mm. something you need there. And I I agree though and this is Malcolm's point in the movie to get us back to Jurassic Park I mean the, the, his whole point in the movie which I think is beautiful and I think it's exactly right uh, that science allows you to do all sorts of wonderful things it gives you these abilities but if you're thinking of science just as a matter of observation and trying to figure out what the world does it, it doesn't give you any information about what to do next it, it mm-hmm. gives you no prescriptions it's just about describing the world and so then, as a human being living in the world, I think you're right, Jay. You do have an obligation to live out your life in, in one way or another. Hmm. And that's where whatever you understand ethics to be is going to come into play. Uh, I mean, the the rest of that... That really great line from Malcolm, he, uh, they didn't stop to think if they should. The next thing he says, science can create pesticides, but it can't tell us not to use them. Science can make a nuclear reactor, but it can't tell us not to build it. And I think that that is a, a really important thing to keep in mind. Uh, there's been a big debate within the philosophy of science for the last few years about whether or not ethics is a science itself. Like, is it something that you can detect scientifically? Can you take ethical prescriptions into a lab? Or can you test maybe the way that our brains work? Or look at biological outcomes as some kind of indicator for what is good or bad? And that's, in a lot of ways, kind of missing the point. Uh, I think a a better way, and, and something that is kind of, I think more, is becoming more on trend, for lack of a better word is that people are recognizing that science and ethics need to work cooperatively, uh, that, which is M- Malcolm's whole point. He, he, at no point does Malcolm ever say, this is it, it's wrong for you to be researching this. He hmm. says, it's wrong for you to be doing what you're doing with this research. And I think it's really hard to argue with him.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Um, so to take this ethical question into kind of a... specific example uh from this movie um john hammond in that conversation says that uh condors are on the verge of extinction if he had put a flock of condors on the island everyone would have been satisfied and so just talking about animal rights and our environment in our environment um what obligations uh do we have to the animal kingdom um and our environment and does hammond go too far in what he's doing and if so how so uh, Anthony I'll, I'll start with you on this one
2: yes yes he goes, too far. <laughs> he goes too far oh my god yes I mean no matter what else you think about any of your other very good questions I don't see how anyone could think that he doesn't go too far oh my god I mean they they mention it really briefly in the movie uh, the it, they kind of skip over it, but they talk about how the they've brought these creatures back, but they're not really completely the same as the as what they were. They they intentionally build this deficiency into their genes so that they think it's going to be something that is going to allow them to control the animals, and it doesn't work because they just get the deficient. The thing that they're deficient in, they get it from their diet, which, side note, that's, uh, that's just really bad science to begin with, <laughs> but never mind. And so, no matter what else you think about animals, or our obligations to them, or what kind of rights they do or don't have, I think the idea of bringing a creature to life, but intentionally designing it to suffer unless you take care of it, in a careful way so that you can control it, that there is something inherently wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But Uh, but as, as far as the other questions go, um, well, I don't, I don't know where you want to take it. Do we get to, do we get to talk about animal rights? Do I get to go up on a soapbox for a minute?
0: Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Oh boy.
2: I mean, I, uh, because I am, some somewhere between a, a vegetarian and a vegan on mm. basically ethical grounds um, And as and some of it's actually I, I would argue it's somewhat theologically based mm. but this is uh, I think that from from my uh, theological perspective, I, I see uh, humans being put into this world in order to care for this world, to care for it and, and to keep it. And care for another creature almost always is going to include nonviolence. And uh, the, the idea of harming a creature simply because it tastes yummy is not a good reason to do it. <laughs> and no mat- again, no matter what other things we might argue for or against when it comes to animal rights in general, when you look at the way that the vast majority of uh, the f- meat-based food chain in, in, in most people's diets operates, it is about as far as you can get from nonviolent. So uh, I, th- I think that we do have some good grounds to criticize that sort of thing, ethically as well as uh, theologically.
1: I I love that, um, like we're talking about ethics, we're talking about prescriptive living, um, that from your uh, theological reading, from your um, just observation of how those different lines of business operate, that this is where you've landed that there's a shouldness to that um and i feel like that would be very challenging to many of our listeners because many oh, of them you know uh, myself included you know eat meat and I, that and that's <laughs> not something that i have uh reflected on from uh an ethical uh point of view that's just kind of always been the culture so i mm-hmm. i love that that is being brought into the conversation I feel like that could be um, a podcast in and of itself not necessarily in story geeks because I don't feel like that's that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's like a, a story related to that but um, just that's wait till maybe
0: they do a geek a story what, yeah. what uh, we just uh, wait like, till they do a geek story Like they'll have a superhero that like can only have superpowers if they eat you know, plant-based, you know. There, like, there oh, was well, a,
2: a a Superman episode where he could like, or not episode, issue, where he could like see the souls of animals and it got kind of weird. But
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah. Um, or I feel like it would be more interesting if the superhero could only have his superpowers if he was doing something that was morally wrong. And oh, then it's like, oh, do I do this whoa. wrong thing to save more people? And, yeah, oh, what do I that's do? good. So um, Ooh, I like that idea. Yeah, that you know yeah. f- future uh radio dramas uh, for, for <laughs> you go. to create i like that um so uh jay um with this conversation about uh animal rights the environment uh what hammond did um i i think anthony was right when it's like there's not really a way to say he didn't go too far but um <laughs> but i'm curious to hear what your thoughts uh on this topic yeah. are
0: yeah yeah totally no, and i and i um I think when it comes to questions like this, oftentimes where I find myself is I go, it's not so much in the person's intent. And this is why, this is why life is hard. This is why ethics are hard. This is why understanding the motivations of people is very difficult. It's not necessarily, it's in the detail. Everything's in the details, right? So Anthony described, for example, a really valid reason of going vegan or vegetarian. For me, that question, as it pertains to animal rights, as it pertains to whether or not he went too far, which uh, yes, the answer is yes, (laughs) but it could be related to let's not, let's not use animal rights for a second. Let's use fossil fuels, right? Is it bad to use fossil fuels? Well, not exactly, but if you're going to keep exhausting them to the point where you're damaging the environment and it can no longer recover because you're using fossil fuels at a rate that is completely ridiculous and that they will never be replenished, did you take it too far? Yeah, you took it too far, right? So I think it's often more in in terms of not the fact that we're doing something, but how we do it and how much we do it and if we start to take advantage of a situation we shouldn't be taking advantage of. And there's always these trade-offs to each of these decisions, which makes the ethical implications we talked about earlier very intense. So for example, uh, I don't have a problem with people consuming meat. However, if you ask me if I'm comfortable with the way that we get meat to our tables, I would say no, there's lots of uh animal uh rights uh what do you call it um violations that are occurring in that process uh so as anthony said like will you see in this in the world of uh of in the, in the natural world you see death take place for carnivores that is not intended to cause pain or harm it is just something that happens it is just an occurrence well in order for us to mass produce food, in order for us to any kind of food—not not it's not just meat—it's all of all of the other kinds of foods—we do some not good things. We use pesticides we shouldn't be using. We uh, take advantage of the environment in ways that we seed fields that will no, will take for take forever to come back because we've completely exhausted and we haven't actually used some of the principles of that you move from this field to that field so that that field can be replenished, right? And I am not a farming expert, nor am I a meat production (laughs) expert, but I know enough to know that these are problems. So how does it relate to Jurassic Park at all? And how do we decide when Hammond has gone too far? I think for me, where it comes to the point where we start to see that we've taken it too far is he's doing things Bringing back dinosaurs, inherently evil, not inherently evil, not inherently evil, bringing back dinosaurs and genetically modifying them like Anthony talked about oh, seems like a problem <laughs> then to go on top of that and say, I have to be first to market. He knows he has competitors because that's what, um, uh, what's the guy's Dodson, name?
1: Dotson. Yeah. Dotson. We've got Dotson here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know
0: that Dotson's a competitor, right? We know that Dotson wants the technology. So he's trying to beat his competitors' market. In order to do that, he's going to cut corners. He is going to, for example, why could you not bre- genetically re engineer some of the herbivores, the smaller herbivores, have them engage with a, an environment for a length of time? for them to be able to analyze what was going right or wrong with that scenario and then learn from that and then take the next step to create another dinosaur that would come back and, and, but he doesn't do those things. He's cutting all kinds of corners. He is um, launching with the T-Rex. He's not testing with a T-Rex, he's launching with the (laughs) T-Rex. And (laughs) let's see how fast it runs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, All of those things have implications. He's under pressure from investors. He's under pressure from the competition, like I talked about all of these things are setting Jurassic Park up to fail hmm. and to have the animal rights um, issues that it has, have the environmental issues that they don't really address too much in the film, but will definitely be a part of that. That, that, uh, what is it? Isla, Isla Nubella or Nubella? Isla, Isla Nublar. Nublar, Nublar, Isla Nublar. That's going to, that is go- There are environmental implications to what's going to happen do you think pterodactyls aren't going to fly to another island they're going to start eating the populations of whatever they're going to start eating right i mean these are the kinds of things that i'm assuming that (laughs) i'm assuming that pterodactyls are carnivores but um even if they're eating the plant life like they can we've seen what happens when we have taken a animal population from one place where it's supposed to be and taken it to a place where it's not supposed to be and it decimates species so i think the, the devil, so to speak, is often in the details. Mm.
1: Yeah, um, and just even thinking about Jurassic Park as a zoo of sorts, um, I feel like we have seen when there are virtuous zoos and zoos that are not virtuous, some zoos uh, kind of just exploit animals <laughs> and yeah. it's just, yeah, they do. here's an animal in a box, look at the animal in a box, um, but then at least, from what I understand of what the Walt Disney Company is doing with like Animal Kingdom, it's much more preservation. Uh, we're having them uh, breed, and we're gonna release their cubs into the wild, and you know, like you know, things like that. That it it seems to be not only for the amusement of the guest but also for the betterment of the species and the world and trying to think uh, how can we impact things in a positive light. Um, I think it's fascinating for in Jurassic Park to bring things back into existence just to put them in a cage. Hmm. I, I, I just think that's one of the ways that he went wrong just because uh, to bring something uh, into existence just to limit its existence feels inherently evil. Yeah, like uh, and it seemed like they had, you know, spacious paddocks and all that stuff, but um yeah, it just doesn't seem like the dinosaur's experience was, you know, thought of much as a living thing, you know, what would um, be virtuous, what what uh is the should in that just even for uh the animals experience. Hey,
0: you been, brother? Yeah, and I think there's also uh uh, a question that comes even before this question, which is, Are human lives more valuable than animal lives? Uh, I think you have to ask that question because you also have to ask if i 'm bringing this animal back to into existence and it is a carnivore and would see human beings as food. <laughs> I must then cage it. So, so so you run into the ethical implication right off the bat when you ask the question. Um, and I think that all of those things are things that you really have to wrestle with before you do any of that stuff. Um, and we're not far from some of this stuff in the modern day, so.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's good to think even in the uh, contemporary world about the human element uh, in our mm, animal production methods, for example, mm. uh, it, if folks are uh, interested, it's kind of a weird self plug, but I actually have a chapter in a book that is way too expensive for you to buy. It's, stupid. <laughs> but because that's that's the way that academic books are—they're like a hundred dollars because only libraries really buy them. But I have a, a anyway. I, I wrote wrote a chapter arguing for four four different. Anthropocentric, or basically human-centered reasons why it would actually be better to not eat meat. Um, all looking at the way that humans are are generally treated in um, meat packing facilities, for example, it's uh, every single year it's in the top five most dangerous jobs in the country, often the top three to, or two, um, uh, to be a, a, a worker in a slaughterhouse. Uh, or looking at some of the longer ranging effects on uh, on the climate, uh, some of the ways that we have to you know, operate these mass productions and in um, commercialized agricultural farming operations, and and so like if that's something that's in, if if folks are interested in it, you can find me on on Twitter or something, and I can send you. The, the file because it's it's something that we've already talked about with Jurassic Park. Like his workers are literally getting eaten, and nothing seems to be different. <laughs> uh, nothing seems to be changing, and that's that's wrong. And at the same time, there's a lot of people in in our actual situation who are getting hurt or who are being taken advantage of. Um, a lot of. Uh, illegal immigrants who don't have a lot of ways to uh, they don't have a lot of options uh, to, to find justice when they're taken advantage of and mm. um, it like you were saying Jay, it's a very complicated issue and I, and I do want to just make it clear that when when I say this is this is the kind of the, the conclusions that I've come to obviously it's it's a big it's a much more complicated issue than just saying well here's seven minutes as to why I'm right and you're wrong that's not what I'm trying to say at all it, It's actually one of the, one of the big um, discussions within kind of the this segment of the the philosophy world is about the question of privilege when it comes to vegetarianism, how a lot of people who might be interested in it just literally can't afford it because sometimes their living situation is such that they don't have access to anything other than like the, the cheapest option might be something like the dollar menu at McDonald's or just mm. what's down at Seven Eleven, and you don't really get, find a lot of bananas down at Seven Eleven. 11. So mm. it, I completely agree that this is, an extremely complex issue, but uh, but it's nice to see a movie like Jurassic Park picking picking this up and and kind of demonstrating it uh, in a in an exciting sort of way.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'm about to jump into a midpoint break, but before I do, I think one of the things that we have to think about as human beings is that if you think back to the natural way that we would go about farming. It is not sustainable to have a planet of seven billion plus people and farm in a way that is, or, or, or maybe provide food is a better way of saying it, to provide food to people in exemplary ways. You've got to have processed stuff. Why? Because if you, had, if you didn't have processed stuff and you had a famine, you're going to wipe out large chunks of people. We don't have as many famines as we as we did as as a human population back in the day, right? Why not? Because we've learned all of these technologies that have helped us, but have also really hurt us in the process. Mm-hmm. In order for those technologies to to work, we have to make sacrifices that maybe we wouldn't like to make otherwise. And so it creates this it creates these very gray areas for us. So I, I'm glad you're bringing that up, Anthony, because it's like. Every solution that we create as a human race also seems to have some other implication to it. And to me, as a Christ follower, I go, of course that would be true because I am reliant on something bigger than this earth to save me. I cannot save myself. There's no way for me to create a utopia. Not that I shouldn't try. Not that I shouldn't try. We should try to do the best we can to take care of everything that we can Um, and do that, but I also come to the conclusion that I better not put my hope in that. And I think that that's a really important thing to consider, at least, as you think about your worldview and how it might be shaped um, according to what we're talking about. Um, So cool, great conversation. But before we continue, we're only halfway through this, by the way. We've got lots of good questions coming up. I um, do you want to let you know about several things that you can access more content from The Story Geeks. The first is our blog. Over at thestorygeeks.com, you can find our latest YouTube live shows and additional written content from Ashley Paul. So Ashley will actually take all of the questions that... Anthony and Justin and I are responding to, and you will get a different perspective, and it'll be a written perspective. So if you wanna read a little bit more about what the story geeks think about Jurassic Park, you can go check out uh, Ashley's perspective there. You're also gonna definitely wanna check out our podcast on Spider-Man from the MCU. That's actually available on our YouTube channel and our podcast, so you can check out either one of those sources if you want to. Also, we just did an Ant-Man from the MCU podcast, uh, Justin was on that one with me, and we went crazy deep into that one too. I mean, we can't we can't help ourselves. This is just what we do. Um, so all of those things are over at our blog at thestorygeeks.com. Um, the Storygeeks.com also has all of the links for all of the ways that you can support us. So you can support us monthly through our Patreon page. Patreon is a website that allows fans to support creators like us, the Story Geeks. And when you do that, when you support the show for as little as $3 a month, you get access to additional content, both audio and video. It's kind of like our way of thanking you for being a patron. We would greatly appreciate your support. It really does mean a lot to us. Um, And we give back to you by providing you with additional content, which is pretty cool. We also have a shop, so you can buy t-shirts. We have new mugs, the Story Geeks mugs, Um, even Reclamation Society, which is our production company, Uh, stuff over there with logos about that. So all very cool. Definitely go check out the merch store. It is shop.reclamationsociety.org. Again, Reclamation Society being our production company, so they're the ones that pay the bills for the story geeks. Um you can go check out the merch shop shop.reclamationsociety.org. Link is in the show notes. And finally, we have another sponsor, Modern Mouse Boutique. You've heard from Josh and Angie before. By the way, Anthony, Josh and Angie are both also vegan vegetarian. So they're 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 uh, team Anthony what? on that one for sure. And I'm very respectful of that. So uh my wife is a big animal rights person so mm-hmm. just fyi uh, modern mouse boutique also sells geek fashion accessories predominantly stuff that has some of the your favorite theme park themes associated with it so if you're a disney fan um, or even a harry potter fan or all the geek stuff go check out modern mouse boutique if you use promo code StoryGeeks, all one word story geeks no spaces if you use promo code, promo code story geeks, you get 10% off your next order. Head on over to modernmouseboutique.com. The link will be in the show notes. They make some of the coolest mouse ears that you have ever seen. If you're thinking about buying mouse ears, before you do, go check theirs out because theirs are fantastic. And like some of them are like custom made, like custom designed just for you. So check that out. It's really, really cool. People love those get your 10% off support the show just remember to use promo code StoryGeeks. one word story geeks no spaces use that promo code when you check out links to all the things that we just talked about are in the show notes real easy just click on the show notes check it out um, or you can find all of that stuff on our blog at thestorygeeks.com thanks for letting me interrupt now let's get Back to the show. Justin, we've got more questions.
1: I do always have more questions <laughs> um, until one of us needs to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we, might, we might hit that point before we actually hit <laughs> the end of the questions. <laughs> um, hey, Anthony, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, so in, in Jurassic Park, Dennis Nedry ultimately causes the breakdown of the park systems. Uh, we could say that was um, caused by greed or... Um, uh, we there, we could, you know, talk a little bit about um, his motivation if we wanted to, but that's not what, really what I'm going to focus on. Um, so there's uh, then Jurassic World, uh, and that is more or less brought down by human error and just some poor decisions and mistakes that were made, um, <laughs> releasing the Indominus Rex on all of the population. Um, so going back to our story, Jurassic Park, Ian Malcolm's character as uh chaostician Chaotician. Chaotician. actually uh believes that chaos will always impact controlled systems, and that pits him against uh John Hammond uh necessarily their worldviews don't mesh because Hammond believes he can build a controlled system uh a park that is safe um uh Anthony, who do you tend to agree with um or uh, is there? another view that you would hold to on
2: this? Uh, Well, uh, Ian Malcolm, every time. Uh, I I think if we're talking about human agents trying to create a utopia, uh, I am completely pessimistic about that working out. Uh, Like Jay was saying earlier, it's not that we shouldn't uh, strive to be as, uh, as... good as we can but like that uh, that Pascal quote um, I threw out earlier that, that humans are we are majestic but we are fallen and we are limited in our ability to predict what sorts of consequences are going to come down the line. Uh, we are extremely limited in our ability to account for all of the variables and so despite our best efforts, I think that what we see, Time and time again, uh, throughout history, is that uh, something eventually gets the better of us, mm. and and then I mean even even Malcolm himself. I was thinking about this. Uh, I was thinking about your question, you know, watching through the movie again. Um, when he gets hurt, even that. I mean, it's kind of silly for when he gets hurt by the T Rex. If he had just not done what he did I, I don't know if, if you watched it like, like in the last day or, or not to remember the detail but you know the T-Rex is, is attacking the kids and Grant gets the flare and distracts it and throws the flare off the edge of the bridge and the T-Rex is leaving when Malcolm jumps out with his flare and, and then, he, then the T-Rex starts chasing Malcolm and hurts him and, and eats the lawyer and <laughs> so like if he had just stayed in the car everything would have been fine, but chaos entered the picture. Malcolm did something unexpected, and uh, e- even the chaotician is not immune. I mean, if anybody should have known that, that, that getting involved was going to create something unexpected, you'd think it would have been him, but, I mean, it's unavoidable. So if we start talking about transcendent beings, if we start talking about something like God entering the picture, then, then I think the conversation can go in a very different way Because now you do have something in the story that can account for all sorts of different variables that are outside the human picture. Mm -hmm. But when we're just looking at Malcolm versus Hammond, my money's on Malcolm every single day of the week.
1: Yeah. And uh, just as you're talking about all of this and, uh, you know, could we create a perfect system, if uh, you think to the Garden of Eden, so some of our listeners will think that Actually, happens. Some of our listeners will be familiar with the Garden of Eden as um, you know, lore or an old story or uh, a religious thing that you know didn't really happen or whatever. But just the story of if there's this place that's perfect that God created and then put humans there and they still broke it. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to go with Han- uh, I have to go with Ian Malcolm. Like uh, even if john hammond were able to make a perfect place if humans go there there's there's going to be some way that we mess it up for for the best intentions and like you were saying ian malcolm getting out of that car with that second flare he had the best intentions he was trying to uh be self-sacrificial um and save people um you know yelling at ellen grant to get the kids while he was running off but he he would have done more good in one sense by doing nothing just because <laughs> Alan <Grant> had already <laughs> taken care of the problem. Um, so yeah, I, I am definitely, um, team Malcolm on this question. Uh, Jay, where do you sit?
0: Uh, also team Malcolm though, I'm going to give Hammond a certain amount of credit. So, so here's what I find interesting about the question. This kind of question is formative to a spiritual perspective, or if you don't believe in spirituality, a worldview perspective that is absent of that, and the reason why I say that is because, and I actually heard recently on a, on another podcast, I heard someone try to explain away that the law of entropy is actually not a thing, um, and the law of entropy <laughs> being that, it, yeah, it, 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 I know, I know, it was, it was, it was very fascinating, but also seemed very out of place. But the law of entropy, which is basically Uh, what we would call a a law that has been scientifically proven, right? Theory of evolution, law of entropy. Um, So even evolution, which is widely believed is still a theory. My point is not to actually downplay evolution. My point is just to point out that this is, that entropy is like agreed upon. Um, That everything goes from order to disorder. Uh, so for example, uh, I, I build out a studio for podcasting and I've got to constantly upkeep it because it's going to go from, I paint the walls. It's going to need a new paint job at some point in time. It's going from order. The paint is nice to disorder. The paint doesn't work well anymore. Right. Um, I think that that automatically lends itself towards a chaos theory kind of thinking, because if it. Imagine, imagine, you know, the, the the lack of order, this complete disorder or chaos. Um, you would say, okay, well, then why doesn't everything go from chaos to order? Why doesn't the world figure out how to run itself to the point where things do not decay, but the things actually become uh, even better than they were before? Uh, So I think it's it's a really good question to start out with from a worldview perspective because I consider that. I go, yeah, well, that fits with my worldview because and I'm willing to concede to somebody. If somebody came to me today and said, like, the Garden of Eden did not happen, Jay. I know you're a Christ follower and you believe in the Garden of Eden, but that's so stupid. You should never believe in that. I go, okay, I still think it's a very valuable metaphor for us to understand how God views the world and how the world is set up because what it basically says is that human beings are incapable of being perfect, that, that with free will gives us the chance to do evil and the choice to be able to do evil, and when that choice occurred, that set up a, 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 an environment that is automatically chaotic. The traditional word used in this scenario is you've set about sin. Sin has entered the world. Sin is the basically the cause of death and chaos. And therefore, that is the environment we sit in. I'm willing to concede that the uh, Garden of Eden may be a meta- metaphor, but it sure is a good one for explaining the kind of world that we live in now. <laughs> so the interesting thing to me about about what... um what Ian Malcolm is talking about is that it is very, chaos is very evident. If you wanted to come up with a scientific law, you'd go, everything goes from order to disorder, look around, you can figure that out. Um, And I think that the sympathetic part of it to me with John Hammond is not that we can then control to a great degree our environment, but that we should attempt to restore creation where possible. Meaning that we shouldn't say, well, if everything goes from order to disorder, so who gives a shit? Let's just all let it go to disorder. But rather say, actually, what can we do despite the fact that chaos reigns? How can we benefit people? How can we benefit animals? How can we benefit our environment? How can we create structures that would allow for order to be restored and then how would we maintain those things? So I will give John Hammond a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that he's trying to do something good and that his intentions are good. But like I said earlier, he cuts a lot of corners. And I do believe that Ian Malcolm is correct that chaos exists. You cut corners, chaos exists, bad things happen. <laughs> so
1: in those cut corners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right exactly.
0: Through.
1: Um so uh I wanna Did you have a follow up? Oh yeah.
0: Anthony?
2: uh well I, I wonder if if I can talk about Jurassic world a minute
0: yeah, 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 go for it because <laughs> i you're the you're in the I, latest time zone you're in the latest time zone, so you're oh the, well, <laughs> you're the one that's going be that I'm worried I, about I, I, I can go all night uh
2: no, but <laughs> this is i i think the thing that bothers me the most about what they're doing with the new Jurassic world franchise is that they are. Kind of losing this this uh, focus, losing this focus on uh, entropy. I'm actually glad you brought that up. I had that in my notes also. Actually, like even if you want to completely set theology to the side, we can still talk about decay as uh, as, as a feature for uh, bringing chaos into the into the picture. And, and that that great classic narrative struggle of man versus nature is what we're we're seeing uh in jurassic park and hammond is basically saying man can win and malcolm is saying i don't know it's maybe but maybe not like malcolm doesn't really pick a side i don't think he's saying nature is going to win he's saying that it's all too complicated to predict but in Jurassic World, they're totally I mean there there is no clear conflict. They're they're taking man and putting nat- like putting man on the same side as nature and just making other people the real villains and, and the whole this this whole beautiful uh, interplay of humanity's wretchedness and greatness gets kind of lost because all of the greatness of the the creation and bringing animals back to life simply because they're beautiful there's nothing like that going on in jurassic world anymore i mean if you i'm mainly thinking of fallen kingdom but um it's kind of where even the first jurassic world ends so it's like all of the wretchedness of humanity is on display now in jurassic world but there's none of the greatness really left Mm. and i think I mean walking out of the theater last night I I have not been that disappointed with a movie in a long time uh, Fallen Kingdom I mean and oh, wow. and I think it one of the things that was really bothering me about it after having 24 hours to reflect on it is is this complete uh well we'll say decay if you'll pardon the pun uh, of this uh, of this appreciation for the human role that Malcolm is is I think trying to appreciate that that we are Great, but also wretched, <laughs> mm. uh, and and Hammond is really ignoring an important half of that uh, dichotomy.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Great point.
1: Mm. Um, I saw Jurassic World a little bit before it was released with my wife because we have access to screenings every now and then. I absolutely love doing that. Um, and then, uh, I, it, it, so I love doing that. That's totally <laughs> beside the point. That's um, awesome. But, uh. W- uh I went again with some friends that were going while Kim was out of town and um, just to be a buddy. And I was like, Kim, that was worse on second viewing. Like I, we, <laughs> we didn't like it on the first viewing. And I am a guy who loves his movies and I was falling asleep in it. And so that was that was a deeply disappointing movie to me
2: too. Are you talking about the first one or the second
1: no, one? No, 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 the uh, Cause the first one I think is just out and out fun. Um, yeah, like, I, I, agree. I uh, agree. It's a very enjoyable movie. It's not nearly as impactful to me, and and not nearly as deep as Jurassic Park. But I really enjoyed Jurassic World. Um, but then Fallen Kingdom, um, I, I feel like they just missed the boat on what the what the movies are about. I think um, if Fallen Kingdom had been the first act of a movie, um, it would have yeah. been it would have been interesting because I think they've set up for a fun third movie. Um, but I think you're right if they're missing all of the themes, um, if they're missing the character development, if they're missing some of the, um, fundamental conflict that's in place in the Jurassic Park lore, um, it, the third one's not going to be as good as I hope it will be, but maybe, maybe they'll course correct and, uh, you know, it, it got bad ratings and it's not doing great in the box office. So hopefully Colin Trevorrow will take some notes and, uh, make some changes, um, but I like you, Justin. <laughs> hey, hey! I like you, Anthony. Um, that, that,
2: everything you just said, I would, I would raise my glass to. <laughs> <laughs> I am
1: raising my Story Geeks mug.
0: <laughs> Whoa! Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well done, sir. A <laughs> little, well little branding there. Okay. Just gotta slip it in.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to focus in on uh, one of the characters in the movie. One of my favorite characters, Dr. Alan Grant. Um, the paleontologist, we learn v- very clearly early on when he's uh, <laughs> horrifyingly like describing to a child how they will get eaten <laughs> by a velociraptor that he's not a huge fan of kids. Um, and so the story throws him into multiple scenarios where he's forced to interact with Hammond's grandchildren, uh, Tim and Lex. Um, and while this is a film about dinosaurs and theme parks, we so often get these intimate moments with uh, of character development, um, specifically around Alan Grant with these kids. So he's a guy that doesn't like kids at the beginning of the movie. Um, and like I said in uh, the live podcast or one of the podcasts last week, he ends the movie with the kids asleep in his arms. Yeah, that's um, right. And I, I just think that's just such a beautiful picture. Um, but... In a movie that could have been just about dinosaurs, we get this character development. Um, And just focusing on Alan Grant's character development, uh, why is that important and integral uh, to this story? And I think, Jay, I think I am starting with you this time. (laughs) I've decided. I'm starting with you this
0: I think that without this, the story would be far less compelling. So... What's so fascinating is that um, the plot devices are set up extremely well. Uh, The plotting of the story is done magnificently. First act, second act, third act, all of the story structure is fantastic. But if the motivation of Alan Grant was about achieving some sort of scientific discovery, or if it was about, um, even if it was pursuing Ellie Sattler, there'd be something missing there. And there's a documentary on, I believe it was on HBO, about Steven Spielberg that is fantastic and everybody should watch it if they have an opportunity to do it. Because it talks about how important family is to Steven Spielberg's uh, filmmaking, whether you take War of the Worlds or whether you take even, even something as simple as like Indiana Jones, which are just adventure movies, have lots of elements of family. Um, and they view relationships in such a compelling way uh, that this is needed in this film. We need to see a character who goes from thinking that's not a form of, it's not that, like my, my wife and I are not most likely not going to have kids, but it's not only that with him, it's that he does not like kids. I mean, it's the next layer, right? So I think that um, that's a really important development for his character because it humanizes the entire scenario. It makes it so that uh, Jurassic World, we talked about this with Anthony when he was on our Make It Better podcast about Jurassic World. All of the scenarios in Jurassic World, all of the relationships are manufactured by giving us little informations about the characters that make us sympathize with them, but they're not earned. They're not, none, of, none of them are earned. This is earned from the very beginning. This is the character, he doesn't like kids. Okay, that's actually not even very sympathetic. We actually like people who like kids, so what's <laughs> going on with this guy? And then he, we earn every single piece of character development that he has to the point where the kids are in his arms. And that's what I think is so magnificent about not only this story, but Steven Spielberg's work as a whole, is that he puts a plot in the viewpoint of a character that humanizes the entire situation in a way that is phenomenal as an audience because now not only am I involved in the excitement of seeing dinosaurs on screen and seeing them chase Jeeps and seeing these amazing shots where in the, in the side mirror you can see the t- 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 T-Rex coming up on you. Not only do we have that, we actually have a character that is going through an emotional journey that we feel empathetic towards and we feel empathetic towards the kids. So it's not just a theme park gone awry. That's what Jurassic World is. It's a character who's going through an arc and it just so happens to take place in a theme park that's going awry. Mm. And it's just magnificent. There's no other way to put it. It's, it's fantastic.
1: Mm. Um, Anthony, uh, what, what do you think about this story... Uh, arc and uh, you know just the one comment i'll make about uh alan grant is he's going through a couple of character arcs because he is also an archaeologist and he's realizing that he's out of a job or as ian malcolm says extinct (laughs) because now (laughs) dinosaurs are alive again so he's coming to grips with even possibly the end of his career and he throws the raptor uh talent away at one point um but uh Anthony, what stands out to you about uh, Alan Grant's uh, character journey?
2: Well, at first I thought that this was just kind of a a character thing for Grant, that it wasn't uh, really connected with the bigger arc of the story in general. But then I actually think that you can compare what Grant learns over the course of the movie with what Hammond learns over the course of the movie. And I think there's a, an argument to be made here that that the great line from Malcolm, that life finds a way, is mm. something that both Hammond and Grant have to come to grips with. Uh, because at the beginning of the movie, they both will oversimplify it and, and say that they, they have a, a rather negative, maybe a- almost even hateful relationship with this very natural thing the the natural world Hammond is trying to control it he's trying to make it his own he's trying to twist it and and you know bring it back to life but only in the way that he has designed it and Grant is just rejecting it he's he's like you said Jay it's not just well I don't want to have kids but I don't like kids period this (laughs) necessary thing for life to continue I don't like it and I want to keep it away I want to (laughs) pretend like I can I can just I mean imagine I'm sure if you were to ask Alan Grant at the beginning of the movie, would the world be better if there were no kids in it? He would say no, but he might pause for a minute and think that would be kind of nice. <laughs> True. But by the end of the movie, he just like Ham- Hammond has come to realize you can't control nature. It is this good thing. It's going to do what it's going to do. And Grant has also come to accept this very natural thing of having children being something, that, even if he, I I still don't think at the end of the movie that he has any desire to have kids of his own, but obviously he's he's okay with, with the idea that there are children in the world. And, and so the, this appreciation for a natural way of life is something that I think you can see mirrored in, in these two different characters, Hammond and Grant. So yeah, I think it is like uh like you said jay it it is a necessary part of of his character arc but i do think it it can reflect i mean i I think it's more than just uh, a guy who is going through this arc and he happens to be in a in the in this theme park i think what's going on with him is actually reflecting what's going on with the theme park in general too showing that that this this natural world is going to bust out of whatever kind of controls we try to place on it Mm. that's
0: Um, really good
1: um I think without the kids, Alan Grant could have been a little bit more like a Muldoon or an Owen from uh, Jurassic World, where he's Uh, an expert in dinosaurs, and it'd just be like, cool, how would this guy who studied dinosaurs his entire life survive in a real-life scenario? And that would have been a fun movie but then he's tied to two huge liabilities, these children. (laughs) And I feel like that element of it isn't focused on enough in the movie, but is just, uh, I mean, it is implicitly because the kids are constantly putting them in danger or not climbing over the electrical fence fast enough and and things like this, but um, there's just uh, peril around every corner and some of it is uh, added for Alan Grant because of the kids. And so uh, Steven Spielberg, man, he is just a master of suspense. Um, So Jurassic Park uh, is a great example of how he can make you scared of things you aren't seeing. The opening scene, you get quick (laughs) glimpses of the raptor. You don't even fully know what's happening, but you know exactly what's happening. (laughs) And it is horrifying and so effective. Um, So uh, just thinking about storytelling um you know movies in this example but uh truly this could be about any form of storytelling um what elements do you feel like have to be in place for suspense to be effective for you to have that edge of your seat feeling like I've had watching Jurassic Park um what elements have to be in place and uh Anthony I will start with you on that one
2: Uh, Well, number one, I think that you have to care about the characters that are on the screen or at the very least you have to sympathize with them in some way. You have to be able to identify with them. Um, Even in that scene, even in the opening scene, uh, you you, when you look at the guy who ends up getting dragged in, um, he's focused on early on in in the scene and, and you can see that he's scared and. We don't know his name. We don't really know anything about him. But you can feel scared along with him. Like I know what it feels like to be scared, and uh, when there are these this mysterious thing that that we don't, we're, we're very confused and uncertain about what's going on back there. I I get con- I get uh, scared too when I'm uncertain and confused, and so you if you don't have that if you don't care or if you can't see yourself in the character on on screen a little bit at least a little bit it's not going to be very suspenseful and and i i mean this this is one of the problems with uh and i don't mean to keep being negative about it but one of the problems with with fallen kingdom is that there were several scenes where i i knew that i was supposed to be Feeling tense, but I just didn't care uh, at all about and I this might sound kind of bad But it was the little girl. I just didn't care about the little girl like at all in that movie and So when she's in danger like okay, yes, that's very scary, but I I it completely loses the the actual uh, Sensation of, of that tenseness for me just
1: just going off that comment about who you care for in that movie, I found myself caring about the dinosaurs more than I've cared about them yeah, in any of it, the other Jurassic Park movies. And,
2: and that's by design, right? Like they wanted you to do that, which I think is also a mistake, but that's, you're totally
1: right. <laughs> uh, and so I, there was the dinosaur, I'm totally blanking on the name, that uh, dies in the smoke on the docks. And my wife made the oh, comment. the brontosaurus. Yeah, the brontosaurus. Uh, the, my wife made the comment that it was making the same movement that it makes when you first see it—that uh, rearing up on its hind legs, yep. uh, trying yes. to stretch for breath now to survive instead of just reaching for a branch to eat. And I, you know, so there were there were a couple beats in that movie that landed for me, but uh, actually, it may have only been that one beat. But <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jay, what else uh, stands out to you as uh, elements for uh, good suspense?
0: Yeah, I agree with an- Anthony uh, that you got to care about the characters. There's also the there's also tricks that you can use in storytelling that are really effective, and I think that those are used at mul- on multiple occasions by Spielberg. One of which is we as an audience see impending doom before the characters who are in the story identify it. And so we see that multiple times. You, you just talked about uh, the kid climbing over the fence. Well, what do we know? We know that the power's coming back on <laughs> any second. And so as we're watching the kid climb the fence, they're like, come on, we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry. And it's like, no kid, you gotta hurry, man. Like you're gonna get fried, you know? Um, and so that makes us, that causes us to have anxiety because we're going, something is going to happen that is very, very bad. And if you don't care about the kid, you don't care. But if you do care about the kid, like Spielberg makes us, then you really are intently thinking, like even though the whole time they're sitting there eating, right? And they're sitting there eating, and then all of a sudden you see the one kid stops and is like, this is not a good situation. And then you see the, then you see the oh, kids yeah. like, well, I mean, those are these like masterful things where we know something's coming because we see a char- one character reacting to it that the other character doesn't know it's there yet. And now it's like, okay, suspense. Um, so I think that that's a core component of it. I think sometimes, like you mentioned too, some of the things that we don't see are scary. The unknown is, is almost always scarier to us than the known. Because as soon as we know something, we start to process it with, well, it, so for example, my, my wife and I have this very uh, odd distinction in terms of horror movies. Uh, she is terrified of real life, things that have occurred, uh, like making a murder, like those kind of things, uh, or evil genius, which is both on Netflix right now, I am terrified by the spiritual or the paranormal. Um, And my rationale for that is, well, as soon as you tell me it's a human, I can start to adjust my thinking to what I could do, right? Uh, I, could, I could protect myself by doing this. I could protect myself by doing that. They're only human. They can only do so much. They can only do this. They can only do that. Um, I think the thing that we don't know, the thing that we don't see, the threat that we're not anticipating is so much more intimidating and anxiety-producing to us because we don't know. And I think that, that uh, Spielberg uses all of those things while we care about the characters to create an incredibly suspenseful film.
1: Um, yeah, I think one uh, other thing that uh, stood out to me just about making suspense land was that there has to be stakes um, mm. for, for uh, you know, it's sort of a pun, but, like, the dinosaurs have to have teeth. Yeah. Um, so we see <laughs> in the very first scene, we're introduced to how horribly strong – And uh, dangerous um, and vicious dinosaurs are and yeah one of the two characters that's really focused in on is now dead and and we kind of cared about that character like you were saying Anthony Um, and so uh, that was one of the things that uh, Jurassic Park did well because we lose a couple characters suddenly or Um, unexpectedly uh, Muldoon being one of the, you know, if anyone's going to survive Jurassic Park, it's going to (laughs) be that guy in those killer shorts with the shotgun. (laughs) Um, But, but no, no, sir, he does not survive. Um, And so making it clear that there are consequences Um, Is an important element and that was One of the things you know again not to go back to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom too much But I was never convinced that anyone was In any real danger Uh, so You know even the Computer hacker kid That was kind of Mm -hmm. the tag along I felt like he was a wonderful candidate For someone that could get eaten And it would have an Impact and not affect the story At all because we don't need him in the movie But right but no. Anyways, so again, <laughs> we're getting sidetracked on that. Um, just to
0: pick up on that, just really quick to pick up on what you were talking about. Foreshadowing. I'd have to go back to really Ooh, say this for sure, yeah. but I think that in Jurassic Park, every single injury or cause of death or hurt that occurs, any kind of pain that occurs, is all foreshadowed. Wow. If you think about it, like, think about just even, uh, is it Endry? Is that his name? Um, Nedri. The- Nedry. Nedry, Nedry, uh, Nedry. We learn early on that those dinosaurs have a toxic saliva. Right. And so when we see them, and we see like, oh, those are cute dinosaurs. Then pretty soon we go. Wait a second. Those are the toxic <laughs> saliva dinosaurs. <laughs> um, just with the just with the, you mentioned um, the other character, the uh, the Australian or whatever the clever girl Muldoon Muldoon. Um, we know that they're super smart and they hunt in packs and it will distract. So when he says, clever girl, boom, you know he's gone. Yeah. And you know that because they told you, they foreshadowed that these dinosaurs do this. Um, even with the even with the Tyrannosaurus Rex, whether they're trying to escape it or whatever, there's this element of, oh, this it, it only sees this, it only sees that. Uh, it only sees movement. And um, so the foreshadowing goes a really long way to make this film just fantastic in terms of suspense.
1: Absolutely. And when most of the time I roll my eyes at exposition, I realized on this last viewing that this movie has some really heavy exposition that I feel like it executes incredibly well (laughs) because you've got the voiceover in the Jeeps that's just telling you, here's what a Dilophosaurus is, here's what it's going to do to one of our characters in the future. Um, But then there's the video with Mr. DNA and it just full-on explains to you how dinosaurs are made. That is an incredibly exposition-heavy scene. But even the way that... Spielberg shoots it, the characters are learning about it, and they're fascinated beyond all reason. And so you are drawn in and you're fascinated. So Spielberg,
0: that guy can tell stories. Well, to that that point, all of his exposition is still shown, not told. If we got exposition where it was like one character, so exposition at its worst is when one character literally tells the other character something that they need to know, and there's no conflict involved but that doesn't happen we see we we, he even introduces us to uh the dinosaur dna character right (laughs) why because he wants to show us he wants to entertain us as we are are learning just like we might learn at disney world when we're going through a ride at disney world Mm. there's a character the character's entertaining me this this seems normal this seems like something that would occur so uh, it's just brilliant Mm. Um,
2: You're making me think of a... It's an element of sound in filmmaking, but diegetic versus non-diegetic sound. Uh, Diegetic is when something is um, a part of the scene. Like if a song is playing on the radio, as Mm. opposed to a song that the characters can't hear, which is non-diegetic. I think... what the way you've just been describing the exposition it's diegetic it's part of the story it's part Mm. of the world and it feels much more natural much more realistic that way Uh, it's when it's non-diegetic when it's just saying and here's what you need to know when it's just the narrator coming in telling you the information and it's not ron howard being funny in arrested development (laughs) that's that's when it feels cheap it's like i i'm smarter than that as an audience member i i want you to show me
1: yeah
0: yep that's great
1: Hmm. Um, Well, we wouldn't be story geeks if we didn't dive into something spiritual. So uh, this movie doesn't delve into spirituality much, but one scene stood out to me differently when I watched it this most recent time. Um, So the lawyer, um, Donald Gennaro... uh, One of more one of the least likable characters in the uh, in the movie. (laughs) He's got some comic relief and stuff, but he's kind of weaselly and spineless. Um, not really someone that uh the kids in the watching the movie want to grow up to be like. Mm. Um, and he uh when the T Rex appears, um he runs out of the tour vehicle, um and he's yelling Jesus. So out of fear, um. Maybe uh, as, as a prayer that we don't really, you know, know, but just he's yelling Jesus out of fear, running away. Um, he goes and sits on the toilet in the bathroom and starts reciting <laughs> Hail Marys. Um, and we all know that that uh, doesn't help him. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it, it, it does not. It's, it's an iconic <laughs> moment in film history. Um, and so uh, my question to you guys uh, and Jay, I'll start with you. Um is do you think the filmmaker uh, or the story is trying to say something about religion hmm. in that moment or is that just an element of that character? Are we just learning a little bit about that character or is this a commentary in some way?
0: Well, all well-told stories are commentary. That's what I love about stories. A well-told story is commentary. And uh I mean, I don't expect anything less from this character, honestly, because uh, or anything more from this character, because we see this a character in this lawyer who does not care for people. There's no there's no evidence at any point in the film that he cares for people. That we have a scene where he cares about. uh, covering the investment of the investors, um, but then when he sees the actual dinosaurs, he goes, "Well, we're going to make this up. This is not a problem." But then, uh, then he gets after the kid for wearing the goggles. He cares about stuff. He cares about things. He cares about um, his own moral standard, which is one of you make money and you do. You only do things that make money, and if you, heaven forbid, you should do something that falls out li- outside of the line of that, because that um, that would be. Uh, against my moral code. He's only concerned, he's not concerned about innovation until he sees that it can make money, then he all of a sudden he's a big fan of it. Um, That to me speaks to someone who would invoke spirituality at the point he invokes it. (laughs) As a last minute, uh, literally hail Mary, Pun intended, um, to try and manipulate a spiritual force to do his bidding. I think it's a very accurate portrayal of what we would call the religious, a religious focused person, a religion focused person. One of the reasons that I find the character of Christ so compelling is that most of what he goes after in terms of uh, what he calls out as not good behavior is people who put standards and morality above people because it's a backwards. Morality exists only so that people can excel, so that people can do well with one another, so that people can be feel loved and appreciated and grow. When you put standards over people, you've actually flipped the entire equation and it's upside down and that's what this character is doing. So the fact that he would call on the name of someone who would have said, like, I told you to put people first. That's the whole point. Well, I told God and people, right? That's we're. that's the whole message. God first people equal to yourself. And the fact that he would not do that this entire time and then call on God to save him from it. Uh, is him using, manipulating God to do something for him because he feels like his moral standard has been achieved this entire time and he deserves it. Now I'm putting a lot into that one scene and what the character journey has been thus far, but it actually doesn't surprise me. And it's something that we, I think we see a lot in our environment. So the, so when you, when you talk about like, is is he saying something about religion and spirituality? I think he is. He's saying religion Without actually having a grounded base in people and spirituality, is literally the opposite of what it should be, mm. um, and it's and it's and it's so much so that it will definitely not do you any good. Now you you could you could ask the question like okay if you were putting people first anyways or if you're putting God first anyways would that person have been saved from the dinosaur? Not necessarily no, um, but in this case it seems like he's trying to manipulate god as opposed to living into what god's will would have been for him because he's not been following god's will the whole time because he's not been focused on people so uh it seems like an accurate reflection of someone who's very morality based on their own morality
1: yeah i think i i'm on the same page with you where i would have felt differently about this scene if i had felt like he was a good man he was a christ follower he was, you know, seeking to follow God, love God, love people. Um, and in the midst of all that, it's highlighted that all of that is futile, you know, mm. and it doesn't exist or something like that. But uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree that um, his spirituality doesn't seem to be very connected to uh, actual practice, actual uh, life. Um, and so it doesn't seem to be as much a commentary. On religion to me as it does uh, a commentary on his character and who he is yeah um, and
0: just to just to piggyback off that really quick because I've seen it done in another story in a really fascinating way that I think is more that is also accurate so I think this is accurate or an accurate portrayal of characters I think another portrayal comes from ready player 1 the book and uh, the character Wade In the real world lives in the stacks next to a uh, female character who's basically like like a grandmother figure for him or a mother figure for him. And she's highly spiritual. And uh, and he kind of says, like, I'm an atheist. That's there's nothing there for me and yet describes a lady who is sympathetic, who is empathetic and says, I really love this lady. I just don't believe the same way she does. And then when that character dies in the story, which is not a pivotal plot point, but that character dies, I won't tell you how, but that character dies. And there's a a strong level of remorse because this kid comes from a broken home. He lives with his aunt who is not a good person. And he goes, you know what? I still mourn the loss of that person who was very spiritual, but not religious mm. so I think that, that we I think that's really two really strong examples between Donald uh, Donald Gennaro and this li- this character from ready Player one in that we can all have different worldviews but when someone puts religion and standards above people, we can clearly see that's bad mm. um, So anyways just another example yeah. Um,
1: Anthony, do you have anything to add uh, to uh, this idea broadly or uh, Gennaro's character in particular? Uh,
2: yeah, I I really like that you used the word manipulate, Jay, mm. uh, because that's um, I I think that it's subtle. If this is intentional, I think it's very subtle, but. Uh, I, I wonder if Spielberg isn't trying to make uh, a broader point with that scene. And I, I hadn't ever noticed that he was saying the Hail Mary before. Uh, but you could, it, I mean, it could just be a part of his character. It, it would be a very common thing for someone with a vaguely Catholic upbringing to say, uh, especially if they think they're about to die. I mean, the whole point of the, the Hail Mary is uh, you are you're asking... You're asking Mary to pray for you, typically to protect you from harm. I mean, the last line of the short prayer says, "Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death." Hmm. Amen. So, if he thinks he's about to die, you know, it would make sense that he'd be praying that. But uh, when when you ask the question, and I I went back and watched that that scene specifically, I, I noticed even the, I mean, he's in the bathroom, yes, and we laugh and we giggle because he's on the toilet, but. There's a flash of him in the Stall before the T-Rex Knocks the thing over and it actually Reminded me of a confessional booth In a Catholic Mm. church and so He's so It it got me thinking I mean there are One or two other places in the script Where they do talk about God uh, But God In Jurassic Park Really seems to just Be a way of talking about nature Uh, I'm thinking mainly of the great exchange between Malcolm and Sattler with the god creates dinosaurs god destroys dinosaurs etc cetera, etc cetera. women mm-hmm. inherit the earth right mm-hmm. it's a great line i mean it's a really it's a great moment but but they're using the word god to basically talk about just the nature the natural world mm. is creating this stuff and so that's why i like what you said about manipulation jay because that's what we've been talking about this whole time right if 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 Gennaro is trying to manipulate this God, or however we want to define God in, within the within the park. Uh, just like how Hammond was trying to manipulate nature, it didn't work out for either one of them, did it?
0: Mm. Yeah, and on, and on top of that, as you describe all of the things that he did before death, everyone else in that scenario is trying to save someone else. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. They are literally people-focused. What does he do? He is so self-focused that he runs and hides in a, in a place while everyone else is subject to the monster. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like he's, he gets what he deserves in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you speak to character, I think that, that that's, a, that's a really big deal. Now, I do think that you know if you were to say, can our own character even save us? I would say, no, our, our own character can't save us. But most certainly... If our character is bad then we're in very big trouble yeah so and uh,
1: if he had been eaten while seeking to save Lex and Tim we would have all felt differently about him totally I, you know so uh, even the yeah. same the same end uh, by a different means mm-hmm. would have changed who he was to
2: me So, you're making me think of a great line from Martin Luther the Protestant reformer uh, God doesn't need our good works but our neighbor does
0: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Also, you can contrast this death and this prayer with an Infinity War. Obviously, totally different movie decades later uh, with the Captain America reference to God, as he said, as he almost says it as a prayer in in light of seeing Thanos um, arrive at the very end. Uh, And he utters God, but he's been trying to save everyone else. He's been trying to protect earth. And it's almost Mm -hmm. as if he's coming face to face with the anti-God and his prayer is then uttered in very different context.
1: And uh, when he is such an incredibly capable person, he has come to the utter end of himself. And, you know, all too often that's when people can turn to God only in the last resort mm. moments. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just interesting that God invites us to turn to him any day, any moment, not just when you're losing to Thanos or <laughs> getting eaten by a
0: T-Rex. So, Well, that's another interesting perspective because the promise is not that call on God and you will be saved from a T-Rex. Right. That's not the promise. The promise is call on God and you can have eternal redemption. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to, I, what is what is the lawyer calling on God for? Saving from T-Rex. Exactly, <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> oh man, and hey guys, we're in the home stretch. I'm on my last question, and Anthony, um, I'm gonna start with you on this one because it's pretty much based off of you. So the Uh-oh. main <laughs> concept of this film, <laughs> which is uh, explored In many stories like we've told uh, that you've explored in the story cauldron um, Icarus, Dr. Moreau, uh, Frankenstein, um, they deal with man's hubris and the idea that when we attempt to play God we create disaster. Um, Hammond plays the God figure uh, in this and we see the results of his hubris um, (laughs) throughout the movie. Why, Anthony, do you think that theme uh, shows up in so many movies? Um, And, and man, what do we need to learn from it that we're apparently not learning from it because it keeps showing up?
2: (laughs) Well, oh, man. I I think this is the human condition. Uh, I think that hubris or what might more simply be called pride Uh, A lot of times people will identify pride as the original sin. Uh, I think that it gets at the core of what makes us wretched and great. Or if you know, do you know the name G.K. Chesterton? Wonderful, wonderful Mm -hmm. writer. If you like C.S. Lewis, pretty much everything good he said, Chesterton said it better first. (laughs) Uh, But he... And I love C.S. Lewis. Don't get me wrong, but Ch- uh, Chesterton's wonderful. I think Lewis would agree with me with what I just said. But uh, Chesterton said the same thing. He said uh, the, the, that that uh, our he was talking about um, his Catholic faith or Christianity uh, that it, it describes the, and makes sense of both the dignity of man and the smallness of man. Mm. You know, the same idea. And the Christian picture describes us as being made in the image of God. That we are like God in some ways, but we are not gods ourselves, and yet so often we try to set ourselves up as God, and that never seems to work out for us, whether we see that in stories like Jurassic Park or what I think will probably end up happening in Infinity War Part 2 or (laughs) although I don't know if Thanos is made in the are aliens made in God's image I don't know that's a funny Mm, anyway that sounds like uh, like a question we would tackle though (laughs) it does (laughs) But, uh, but I think even if you go outside of the Christian worldview it's not just something that Christians have to deal with when you look at Uh, I'll say any religious worldview or or spiritual worldview to to keep uh, the same terms, uh, any spiritual worldview, uh, certainly any large-scale spiritual worldview, deals with some kind of problem that needs fixing. There's something that's wrong with us and religions give us Answers to that problem, whether it is that uh, the problem is sin, or the problem is disobedience, or the problem is desire, or the problem is illusions that need to be dispelled. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of different possible answers uh, to that question of what is the problem. But there's always there's something. That we're missing. There's something that, uh, that makes us incomplete. That seems to be cross-culturally recognized. Mm. Be- and because no matter what religion we're dealing with, no matter where that religion pops up, it's setting, at, it's setting out to solve that problem or to give some kind of solution. And I think what we are capturing with our stories about hubris is somebody who is ignoring the reality of that problem. And is trying to push ahead despite the fact that they have this massive flaw, mm-hmm. and whether that's somebody who is flying too high to the sun on wax wings or somebody who is bringing gigantic monsters with very sharp teeth back from the dead, uh, I think at the core it's the same problem. Mm.
1: Mm. Um, going back to another. Biblical story that, you know, whether it's an analogy, whether it's history, um, I think we can learn from it uh, in uh, this context also is just the Tower of Babel. There's something about uh, the way that uh, humans are, that they are designed to create. They're designed to um, maintain and be custodians of creation, but then also be creators. Um, in and of themselves but then there seems to be uh, a point that uh, they should not cross so you know in the story of the tower of babel they uh, tried to do something to be like god um, and uh, god stopped them and in uh, the story of jurassic park um, humans tried to do something that made them like nature and nature stopped them Um, And so it's just fascinating to see in all of these stories that we're mentioning, um, trying to do something outside of the should, uh, whether that is natural order or uh, an order set up by uh, a supreme being um, and that is uh, immediately responded against strongly. Um, It's just, yeah, these stories uh, have been coming up throughout history. Jay, what are you thinking about this?
0: I really like what um, Anthony had to say. And the only thing I'd add to it is that the problem with pride, like what is the problem with pride or hubris as, as we've talked about with, with Hammond. And I think the problem with it is that, and the reason why it works itself into so many narratives is that, Pride automatically puts the individual as being more important than his or her colleagues, the society at large. Suddenly, because I created Jurassic Park, I am better than. I'm better than you. Uh, I can make more money than you. I deserve to make more money than you. Look at how intelligent I am. I can make dinosaurs. I can create dinosaurs. I have the the capability of bringing order that other people could not bring to a situation. I can bring it, um, and that sense of pride that that leads to this that leads to this hubris, or maybe those th- things can be used as um, synonyms. That is a core lesson in the getting again getting wrong the the intent of human beings which was that human beings should be treated as equals and that no one human being was set out to be more important than other human beings that the sanctity of life was equal across across all forms um, and I think that the stories resonate with us so much because We ourselves can can understand what that looks like, even in the microcosms of our day. I can go and say, well, I would like to uh, have you know. Let's just say that there's. Let's just say that you have you go to. This is a dumb example, but you go to uh, Baskin Robbins, and uh, you and your wife say, or you and your kids say, oh, we'd like to have one scoop of chocolate chip ice cream, please. And you can just tell that the one scoop is bigger than the other scoop. And you think, man, (laughs) I probably deserve that bigger scoop. Even that, even the microcosm of life that that is, to put ourselves as, well, I'm more deserving of that than than my fellow man. um, I think that that leads us down some pretty terrible paths. I mean, that, taken to its full extent, is what led Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler down to exterminate exterminate people groups. Um, It is what causes us to have this, super strong sense of nationalism. I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of your country. What I am saying is your country is full of people who are equally valuable as other countries and their people. Equally valuable. I'm I'm not saying that that's not going to lead us to conflicts at some point in time. I'm not saying that that's not going to create some really distinct issues for us over time. But those people are equally valuable. You have to, I think you have to get there. These kind of stories show us the result of when we do not believe that. Um, whether and I think in this case it's not always just people, it's the environment around us right we can become we can create our own environment we can create our own utopias um, and the the reality is we can't we are not God. we cannot create those things. And if we as flawed humans tried to
1: create utopia, we would do it imperfectly yep. because we have um misplaced attachments and we have misplaced desires and so even what I think would make for a utopia uh, would not be um, and so yeah uh, I love that we can be reminded of these kinds of uh, deep thoughts even in something that uh, someone could watch um, with a tub of popcorn and a coke you know uh, that's what makes this podcast so special to me because we take a deeper look at themes that Um, the writer-director are thinking about to some extent, but um, all stories reflect truth. All stories reflect life, and we get to dive into that. So um, before I turn things over to you uh, to close things out, um, Anthony, is there anything uh, else that we didn't touch on that's in your notes or anything like that that you wanted to say?
2: Uh... Not really. Actually, no. I think we kind of. <laughs> it feels like no, it's I mean, been a
1: really robust conversation. I so so. I, I just wanted to give you the option, but I
2: wasn't
0: really expecting anything. Uh, yeah. Jay, same thing to you. You know, I think that the film. The only thing I would say, and I won't go on uh, a diatribe about this. And I honestly thought about um, when you sent out the questions. I thought about including this as a question as well, suggesting it as a question, um, but I didn't because we are three white cis dudes talking about this film Mm. and we covered a lot of the topics i think that we uh have the ability to cover i do think the film has something to say about the patriarchy i do think it has something to say about a super awesome character in ellie sattler uh and the two kids as well um but i didn't ask that question because despite the fact that i had invited some uh, women to join us on the the podcast. They couldn't make it. It's a busy week. We're in the week of July 4th is when we're recording this. Um, and so I didn't include those things, but I do think the film has some things to say about those things. Um, I do think that the female character of Ellie Sattler is not treated as a masculine character. She's treated as a feminine character and yet is the strongest character in the film. You can Uh, make an easy argument for that. Um, But... Uh, with three dudes talking about that, I thought, well, I don't know if we can totally do that justice, but that's there. And that's, and I hope somebody else picks it up where this discussion left off mm. and runs with it. Well, that is it for today's show. Uh, special thanks to uh, not only Anthony Holder for joining us from the Story Cauldron podcast, but also to Justin Weaver for actually hosting the podcast, which is awesome. So thank you guys for joining us. Really appreciate that. Really quick, where can people find you if they want to find you and follow you or get involved in what you're doing? Anthony, maybe you can go first. Uh,
2: okay, the dot com would probably be the easiest place. Uh, you can find links to my my Twitter handle, and you can send us emails there if you want uh, if you want to know more. And um, we've got we're back from we went on hiatus for a while because Bobby was getting married, and uh, Garrett and I were in some plays. But but we're back. We at this point we have three episodes up. Um, but by the time this podcast drops we'll probably have quite a few more <laughs> but um, yeah cool. and you can uh uh send me messages on twitter um if you'd like any other uh any of that stuff i was talking about earlier
0: awesome
1: yeah and i've got an instagram <laughs> it's my <laughs> full name justin dean weaver yeah you can follow me there that's i i need to create more content so that people can follow me if more i'm places. not mistaken in
0: your profile picture you're wearing a jurassic park t-shirt
1: That totally could be because (laughs) that's one of my favorite t-shirts ever. And I guess my random comment just about the movie is, uh, John Williams makes amazing music that, that is possibly my favorite soundtrack ever. Um, or at least the Jurassic park theme is one of my favorite, uh, movie soundtrack moments ever. Um, and then I don't know what it was about that movie and Jeeps, but, man, I have wanted to own a Jeep ever <laughs> since I saw that movie. So
0: <laughs> That is awesome. Hey, well, def- uh,
2: this this was something. I, I should have said this earlier. I did a, I just looked at my notes and I saw one other thing. Uh, you know what you were saying way back, you know, like four hours ago when we started this, Jay, about how the uh, special effects hold up in this movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I can't remember if we said this on our podcast or not, but um, this movie, Jurassic Park, is indirectly responsible for uh, both the Star Wars prequels and the Lord of the Rings movies. Because it was the quality of the special effects in Jurassic Park that convinced George Lucas to go back and start looking at making more Star Wars movies. As well as convinced Peter Jackson that maybe they might be able to do justice to a fantasy film on the sc- on the big screen.
0: Mm. Oh, that's cool. That's really so, cool. So
2: whatever your opinions are about Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars prequels, maybe they balance each other out. But uh, yeah, you can thank Ju- one more reason to love Jurassic Park,
0: right? Mm. And one more reason to go listen to the Story Cauldron podcast on Jurassic Park. (laughs) So there you go. Go check that out. And be sure to connect with us in the Story Geeks Facebook group. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Or if you can give us some ideas for future episodes, that would be great. The link to the Facebook group, along with all the other links you need, is in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show or any of the Story Geeks podcast, please share our show with a geek friend. And also be sure to check out all of our other content. Head on over to our blog at thestorygeeks.com. And don't forget to subscribe, too, if you're not subscribed. And thanks for listening. As always, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth.